Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media these days, and we have some veteran journalists here to guide the conversation uh, with you. My name is Rex Smith. I'm the former editor of the Times Union here from the Upstate American. Happy to try to keep these folks in line. Judy Patrick is next to me, the former editor of the Daily Gazette and Schenectady Vice President of the New York Press Association. Mike Spain is here, the, my former colleague, the associate editor of the Times Union, now heard often on the round table here on WAMC, and Ian Pickus, the news director here at Northeast Public Radio. So we're going to do okay, right? Rock and roll. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay. There's a lot to talk about, actually, but we maybe ought to start with what is new, and that is... AI. Everybody is concerned about how artificial intelligence is going to take over the world. Are we in danger or is it the prospect for something great? One place where it has emerged is in journalism and an online site called Futurism has broken the story that Sports Illustrated has been running not only AI-generated content, but also authors whose images and biographies apparently are unreal, generated by AI. Ian, you're our our sports expert here. This seems consequential. Very consequential. And I think it might represent kind of a new chapter in this. Now, let's be clear. AI in sports writing is not new. It was over a decade ago that the Associated Press announced it would start using effectively robots to write game stories that had previously been written by a human being sitting in a press box. And that is one thing. And of course, I think we all you know, sort of howled when that was announced because you can see where it's leading and maybe that's where it's led today to wholly generated AI stories about sports. AI can look at a box score and a play-by-play and say, you know, the Reds scored two runs on a double in the sixth inning and beat the Mets two to nothing on Saturday in front of 22,000 fans. That's not the hard part. Sports Illustrated is known as a legacy media outlet who has done some of the most important sports journalism in the history of this country, to now have fake AI avatars purporting to cover sports for Sports Illustrated with a made-up biography and a photo sourced from an AI photo website of that author seems to me to be a lot different from where we started with the AP. Kind of a big fall, don't you think, Judy, from what Sports Illustrated was? Oh, they have long been known for their excellent writing. You know, the writers there are just, they can spin a sports story. I mean, I used to think sports was one of the hardest things to write about, but Sports Illustrated writers were just magnificent how they wrote. 
This seems to be sponsored content that they used artificial intelligence to generate. And sponsored content, I think all of us who have run websites have been leery of sponsored content. Define sponsored content? So sponsored content would be content that is not produced in the newsroom, that is not produced by the Sports Illustrated staff. They have no control over or very little control over. This typically promoting a, a service or a product or um, has some heavy advertising associated with it. The other part about this was that is unsettling that they attached a made-up person's biography, a made-up person's photograph to lend an air of legitimacy to the made-up story. So from where I stand, I think this is a wake-up call for us as we deal with sponsored content going forward. I think the editorial departments that run websites need to stand up and say, we need greater control over this, and you can't just be throwing artificial content up there. Mike Spain, isn't this going to enliven calls for government regulation of this kind of thing? Well, it may, <laughs> uh, although I don't know that the public will clamor over it the way that the journalism community has clamored over it and is rightfully complaining about it. What I worry about is that people are okay with quote-unquote sponsored content. You look through a legitimate website, you're reading a legitimate story on a major site like the New York Times website, for example, and you'll see a, an ad, a picture, a provocative headline, and it says sponsored content. It might get your interest. It will be very well written. It probably, in the case that I'm describing, it's probably written by a very good writer that was hired to write it and promote something, as Judy said, subtly perhaps or maybe less subtly, but it's advertising. It's promotion. It isn't objective journalism, and that line between sponsored content and journalism is getting very fuzzy. As to the AI being used at Sports Illustrated, I really wondered, Ian, you're the the sports guy in the room. (laughs) Do you think it's the back door? They can pull it off in sports, then they'll try to pull it off in other areas because we already know that some sports journalists embellish their stories. It's been revealed recently that some sideline reports in football were made up, and that's sort of part of the complications of sports writing. There are some people who have not been completely honest with the public, so maybe it's the the back door in for AI to kind of demonstrate that it can do as as well as some mediocre and not-so-good journalists. Yeah, I think that's true. I'll give you an example that came up in my last reporting on sports class. We had to do a season preview story about a baseball team. And for most students, that's catnip. I mean, they all care, and they want the Mets and the Yankees and the Red Sox to do well. One student turned in a paper that talked about the huge struggle the Yankees had with their offense, and that's why they signed Bryce Harper to play on the team this year, which was not true and was 100% an AI getting it wrong. So I think at this moment, knowing when it's AI, when the AP says, yeah, this double-A baseball game story was automatically generated, and you know, that's totally different from the Sports Illustrated case that we're looking at right now. And when you get into that uncanny valley and you have no idea because the AI has gotten better and better and better, which is what will happen in the next few years, I think that's where we run into a lot of problems. You know, there used to be a certain standard that was enforced by simply the tenets of journalism about uh, making clear what was sponsored and what was not, both in print and digitally. For example, in a newspaper, uh, Ink on Crushed Trees, 
we would have certain typefaces that were reserved for editorial only. The uh, advertising department was not allowed to use the same fonts that were available to the newsroom. Similarly, digitally, it used to be very clear. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I think that that was always a struggle from the beginning of the Internet age to try to assure that the stuff that's on the website didn't mimic the real journalism. And I think it's much harder to tell the difference these days. Right. And does the reader know what the term sponsored content means? No. And do they recognize the difference between fonts? They don't. I I think it maybe gave us a false sense of safety that at least we're trying to differentiate the two. I think that there is a future for AI in media going forward to do some of the things that we hate to do, maybe like writing captions or writing synopsis of of stories. Or or perhaps gathering information. I mean, like a super Google search on steroids where you get legitimate collections of material about what you're writing about. Data analysis also. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. Data, data analysis. Very useful. Yeah. I mean, which, right. you know, actually, computer assisted reporting is that at a more fundamental level. It's not as intelligent as artificial intelligence, but anytime you actually ask a computer to analyze data for you, it's doing that. But maybe it could do some of those tasks. Like on election night in the newsroom, I would often assign myself the task of writing those little 12 word headers <laughs> up at the top of the page that summarize things. Yeah. That's very hard, you it know. It is. And it to is. make it just fit perfectly, I'll bet you that AI could have done that a lot better and faster than I could. So it's a thought. But then you wouldn't say by Rex Smith. And that's right. the whole problem. Right. And, yes. and Rex loves volleyball, even though it's hard to figure the sport out if you don't have a ball, which is what the Sports Illustrated biography <laughs> said. That's right. what it said, yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very important to have a volleyball when playing the sport. That's what it said. Yeah. But you're right. Sports Illustrated, actually, it's a sad thing. It's no longer the wonderful venue. Arena Group is the new owner. That's why it's fallen down in this external third-party company they're blaming. Remember the great Sports Illustrated writer uh, William Knack? And some great literary figures wrote for Sports Illustrated. Bill Knack, by the way, was one of those guys who could recite the last page of The Great Gatsby. It's a great barroom trick. He would use it to some advantage, I'm sure. But these literary giants probably (laughs) won't be navigating to Sports Illustrated down the road. Probably will not. It's a sad (laughs) thing. It's the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to share your thoughts, media at wamc.org. I'm Rex Smith here with Judy Patrick, Ian Pickus, and Mike Spain, and we are glad to have you with us. One of our listeners, Dave, in Clifton Park, has suggested that we take a look at something written by Robert Reich, the former Treasury Secretary, who talks about ways that the mainstream media are helping Donald Trump and his Republican allies. And one of the things that he notes is the false equivalence between Trump and Biden, claiming that Joe Biden's political handicap is his age, while Trump's corresponding handicap is his criminal indictments. And therefore, people are not taking a look at Trump's misstatements. In Robert Reich's words, his increasing senescence. Look that one up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It means getting old and falling apart. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it is interesting that, you know, because some of the outrageousness of the things that we hear from Donald Trump, we have now become accustomed to. And so it doesn't get reported. It's not new. It's not new. Yeah. 
How do you overcome that? Well, you know, but the idea that Joe Biden is old is not new either. I reject Reich's argument. His, we are trying to paint it as equivalent. It's not equivalent. If you counted the number of stories in mainstream media, at least, about Joe Biden's age, you're not going to see the same number as you are about the daily, daily um, recounting of what Donald Trump said in court, out of court, what the prosecutor said. There is the problem that the public is getting tired of listening to the Trump stories, but um, I think we have to keep plugging away at it and put it in front of them as it develops. Is there any equivalence to being indicted, uh, having 91 charges against you or, or more, as opposed to being older? I think what the media has failed to do is talk about Biden's age in a more intelligent context, talk about how has he failed to do his job if he has because of his yeah, age. What has been the impact of his age? And I think you saw his handlers and certainly the surrogates that are out there saying nice things about him, saying that during the attacks on October 7th in Gaza by Hamas, where they really kicked off this horrible confrontation in the Mideast, uh, people were saying that Biden had experience. He had the wisdom that age brings not to overreact and to help him manage that. Now, he's getting criticized for not responding more aggressively to the way that Israel responded. Some liberal Democrats are criticizing him for that and others. But people are saying when you are older and you've been in government this long, you have an understanding of what it takes to sort of mediate these kinds of crises when they're happening. And that is spread broadly across his uh, the way that he's been administer you know, running the government. But not everybody sees that. Not everybody understands that. And, and as you get older, you understand it better. <laughs> and my God, on Thanksgiving Day, he took a dip in the waters off the coast of Delaware into the chilly waters and came out with his family. I mean, Donald Trump did not do that. Donald Trump could not do that. Ooh, that would be disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You know, it occurs to me that the Rolling Stones just announced a stadium tour sponsored by AARP, yes. which will sell out every seat in football stadiums. But part of the thrill is that at 80, 81, you go and they can still do it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, in, given uh, Robert Reich's arguments here, the age is there. It's a choice between two people. Most likely, these are going to be the two people. And they're flaws are going to be on display in this election. So what are you supposed to do? Trump and Biden don't have a lot in common in the way that they've pursued their respective presidencies. Yeah. But they are going to both get negative attention from reporters deciding, as the public does, if they're going to get another four years or not. The difficulty I think that Reich is pointing to is that there is a qualitative difference between Joe Biden sometimes struggling to come up with a word, as even people 10 years younger than he is do. And somebody who had earlier in his life overcame being a stutterer, and that's uh -huh. quite an accomplishment, and it does recur a little bit in people that have had that. Right. Yeah. So the difference between that and the 91 charges, the four felony indictments, that's a qualitative difference twice impeached spawned an insurrection, those are qualitatively different. And so if you look at them as almost alike, it is problematic, but I don't know how you overcome well, that. Well, that's what I'm saying. The, yeah. the way people organize their thoughts 
it's a binary. It's a choice between two people. And when you think about what you know about those two people, probably the ledger on one side is a lot longer than the other one. But ultimately, it's a 50-50 choice and probably will be a 50-50 election. But in the context of the way that the previous elections have been covered, and this is another remarkable piece that has just emerged. Some researchers wrote a piece that was published this past week in Columbia Journalism Review analyzing the coverage of the 2016 presidential race. Now, of course, this is what academia is good at. Is <laughs> going back. <laughs> going back. Seven years. Yeah. And, and you know, the poor editors whose decisions at that time about, oh, this is important, this is not, now have to answer for it. But two very specific points that they make about the coverage of the largest and most important newspapers, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the LA Times. I think were the ones that they looked at, was that there were so many stories about Hillary Clinton's email server. You remember that? And so few stories about policy. Most of the coverage, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, is horse race coverage, and it remains today. We are still seeing in the coverage of this election right now, it is so much about the dynamics of the presidential race as opposed to what policies people stand for. You know, Rex, you and Judy were both editors at newspapers in 2016, deciding what would be on the front page, most likely on any given day. Do you recall putting that email server story on the front page, and why was it regarded as news? Well, our choices were easier because we are at fundamentally local newspapers. We always would say, why would somebody read the Times Union? Not for coverage of Washington necessarily, especially when it's so much available online or from television, but from local news. So we didn't put that much national news out on the front page. So we can be kind of self-righteous about this. (laughs) You know, what decisions would we have made if we were actually sitting in the New York Times newsroom is kind of hard. I don't know. Did you put... I'm trying to remember. I think I put it inside a lot lot of times, but I'm trying to remember what I would have done with those last-minute stories that came out when the FBI announced that they were... At the last minute. ...reopening the investigation. That might have gone on the front page, but I I actually can't remember. I think one of the things we're really missing this time, and you hear some of it, is what Trump's plans are for the second term. This retribution tour that he's on is, is, is scary. Well, yes, and I think Reich in his commentary criticizes that, you know, we're not covering that, we're not telling the full story. But, you know, all the things he says we're not covering, I was kind of aware of. So Uh it's there. It's not really the mainstream media. It's the media that is to the far right that is doing this. And unfortunately, we can't control what people read and what people watch. How do you do that? How do you... How do you solve a problem like Fox News <laughs> <laughs> and its pretenders, <laughs> its, its wannabes? How do you get something like that? Fox News, I mean, this is a wonderful example of the calamity that is Fox News that isn't really news, and that is the hours that Fox News was broadcasting that the Bentley that took flight at the Rainbow Bridge in Buffalo was, in fact, a terrorist attack for hours without a shred of reporting to support it. Fox News was on the air with this being a terrorist attack on the United States. There was never an official who actually said that being of value, but Fox News was on the air with it. And it's still, I am sure that many Fox News viewers still believe that to be the case. But what do you do about a purportedly a supposed news organization that has standards that don't match any sort of integrity. I think you're seeing one tactic tonight, and this is being recorded on Thursday, when 
Gavin Newsom is supposed to debate Ron DeSantis, the two governors, one from Florida, one from California, on Fox News. I think you're going to see more surrogates out there for the Biden campaign trying to get on Fox News. I know Pete Buttigieg is a frequent interviewee on Fox News and some others uh, who are quick and fast and can use and, and can call up facts very quickly and respond to the uh, real time to the questioning that might come from a Fox News interviewer. But even taking out ads, you know, Biden ads on Fox News might be the the answer to or at least one answer to how to get both sides across. Well, yeah, it's not going to happen by uh, expecting the uh, hosts to do anything, the entertainers who have their prime time schedule under control. And, you know, the same uh, issue applies to uh, the non-news element that is now um, X, uh, formerly Twitter, which has become something of a disaster, you know. We ought to suggest that X is different from what it was, uh, which it, it was a, a actually a powerful source for delivering information to people. Many important government decisions were announced in statements on, on Twitter. And uh, it became a go-to place for information. It was really useful during the pandemic, uh, the, w the way that doctors and health officials would get information out about the spread of COVID and, you know, the, the success they had in tracking variations of it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it had an enormous public value that's being just diminished every day. Right, and it used to be a really good um, news feed for me of, of what was happening in the world as as quickly as it happened. But now it has become something that I every time I see something that might be news, I, I, I say, is that really true? It's lost its credibility. A lot of the great posters have gone, have, have left. They have been frustrated, uh, dis disgusted with what's happened to the platform that they've just walked away. Still on it every once in a while. Every once in a while you, you see, you know, bright spots. But Elon Musk, he, he, is, um, he is ruining it, and he doesn't seem to care. It not only doesn't care, he <laughs> said in an interview on in the New York Times Deal Book Summit, he uh, well, we can't use the profanity because uh, the WAMC is regulated by the Federal Communication Commission. But uh, he used that F word about advertisers. You know, that's how he feels. He's uh, and this is, of course, after advertisers have backed away as a result of his blatantly anti-Semitic posts, his own anti-Semitic posts, and allowing very dangerous conspiracy theories and so on. He is basically, since he uh, paid $44 billion to take it over, he has stopped any efforts to control the quality of what's on there. So a lot of big brands, Disney, IBM, and others, have uh, stopped their advertising, and he seems to be good with that. It's just, it's sad that a, a, what was a major source of information for Americans is is gone, in effect, right? And is anything emerging to replace it? I mean, there's pieces of it, you know, on Facebook, and Facebook has now their own platform. Threads. Threads, mm -hmm. and and uh, TikTok is going to benefit from it. You know, they're going to get more people on there. But there's a lot of disinformation on TikTok and on Facebook. So I don't know where you're going to go for reliable information. Maybe a newspaper. No. Maybe a radio station. <laughs> <laughs> Public radio is Maybe your answer, Maybe come back folks. to legacy media. I mean, this might actually be something of value if the uh, wide, wide world of digital becomes untrustworthy generally, then the specific brands that have standards might 
once again emerge as valuable. As long as AI isn't uh, <laughs> invasive like it has ah. been in Sports Illustrated. There you go. I think it's bad for places like this one, you know, a small um, organization that had to fight and claw for every follower and build that up over years and years. And you can't just flip a switch and move all those people over to threads where the algorithm's different and you're dealing with a whole different set of um, feeds. So I think it's, you know, we have sort of stoked the Twitter fires still. We haven't abandoned it, but a lot of public media has and NPR has. And I think that's going to leave whatever's left behind on Twitter will still be influential in a very malignant way. Mm-hmm. You know, NPR said after it left Twitter, it has had little impact on the really? flow of, of traffic to its website. So it has not affected um, its uh, performance online hmm. by leaving Twitter. But, but even the headlines that people don't click through to read the whole story, even the headlines have some value in informing people what's going on. And if the headlines are only from less legitimate and more uh, you know, politically motivated uh, or sponsored content, it, it, it will diminish the value of, of Twitter or X altogether. I think Elon Musk has lost sight of the fact that when you own something like Twitter, you have a public obligation. You were a steward <laughs> of uh, all for, people. for the public good. <laughs> I, I mean, publishers and owners of newspapers and radio stations and television stations and boards that, you know, run these places, they do have a sense of mission of, of public good. And Elon Musk, he, he has lost that. I mean, he has, he, it's all for his ego. Well, if you look at what happened with the Washington Post and, and Jeff Bezos, it's a contrast and you're talking about a different billionaire with a different set of politics but he to the best that we know has been hands off mm-hmm. he's Very let it do the job interesting contrast finally today just uh, from the uh, outrageous to the uh, ridiculous uh, officials in calumet city illinois have now withdrawn uh, the charges they had filed charges uh, against a news reporter for the Daily Southtown, which is a regional newspaper now owned by the Chicago Tribune, because he was asking too many questions. Uh, this young reporter, Hank Sanders, apparently kept calling city officials, and when they wouldn't answer, he called them again. So he was accused of a crime. And uh, last we heard, it's not supposed to be a crime to ask questions, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Let's you, hear you it know, for we use, You know, we've all known reporters like that, and a lot mo- and they're usually really good reporters. We we do encourage them to moderate a little bit. Don't call every five minutes, but uh, be persistent. This is what good reporters are supposed to do. Yeah, and, and more more polished reporters are maybe a little more sophisticated about it. They they develop relationships and they they can cajole people a little bit. Uh, and they get their information maybe by developing a relationship over time. But that's more difficult now because reporters have a much bigger beat. They don't get a chance to know their sources, et cetera. So it's it, it, using government, uh, you know, government using laws that don't apply to punish reporters. It's it's becoming more prevalent. Yeah, you might just answer the question the first time. That's all we have time for today. Imagine that. (laughs) This is The Media Project, and we thank you for joining us. I'm Rex Smith. We uh, are joined here by Judy Patrick, Ian Pickus, and Mike Spain. And we thank you for joining us. We thank David Gassina, our producer, and we hope you'll come back again next week for The Media Project. 
When they know they've got a people's fight to wage Ting-a-ling-a-ling, newspaper guild Got a free new world to build Meet the people, that's a thrill All together fits the bill The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, former Times Union associate editor, Mike Spain, and WAMC News Director, Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.